Hi, everyone. My name is Colin, and I get the great pleasure of continuing on this series uh, through David's life. Um, and today, I get to talk about the um, pretty obscure, um, it's not very well-known passage in David's life. It's about a fight between him and Goliath. Um, so if you're not very familiar with it, it's okay. Not many people are. Um, <laughs> Good. Yeah, no, David and Goliath has to be, within like the world and our society, there's two stories from the Bible that hopefully most people know. We know that Jesus died for your sins, even if we don't know why. And we also know that David beat Goliath, right? It's the two things that we can count on people knowing about the Bible. And the phrase has worked its way into general society, a David and Goliath victory. And so today I want to start off by looking at a few of those different victories that we have. Um, so the first one, a David and Goliath victory. Let's see if this works. Hey. All right, any of you guys know who this is? This is the Iceland team uh, in the European Championships that just recently happened. And if any of you guys followed it, it was the most beautiful uh, championship for this Iceland team because they're this small little nobody. And I think the highest point in their journey came when in the quarterfinals they faced off against England. So England, home of the premiership, like football country. And so Iceland versus England, little guy versus this big guy. And I have to say, I lived in the UK for five years and I lived in England and I loved England. I love England heaps, but when Iceland won, it was beautiful. It was, it was a wonderful, wonderful day. And to, to talk about how ridiculous it was, Iceland has more volcanoes than it has professional footballers. And they managed to somehow beat the England team. It was amazing. Now, another David and Goliath victory. Um, I need to apologize to any South Africans in the room because you're going to have to relive a painful memory. Um, back in 2015, we had the World Cup. Uh, and how many of you guys remember that Japan-South Africa game? Oh, I mean, Safas, you guys are wonderful, but that was an awesome game. You know, Japan, this little, little country, um, managed to take on South Africa, one of the juggernauts, one of the strongest teams in the, in the championship, and beat them in this first game. And again, for Japan, it was monumental, because this was the first World Cup match that they have won in 24 years. And they beat South Africa. <laughs> David... <laughs> Goliath, right? This massive monumental one. But the biggest David and Goliath story that we can remember really in the last year has got to be Leicester winning the Premier League. Now, if you guys don't know about it, the Premier League's big soccer football championship in, in the UK. Um, and Leicester came out of nowhere with 5,000 to 1 odds and managed to win the Premier League. It was outstanding. And it was so rare that statisticians and bookies managed to talk about other things that were more likely to happen than Leicester winning the premiership. And a few things that they thought were more likely is, uh, so they thought it was more likely that Simon Cowell would become prime minister of the UK. Those were 500 to one odds. Leicester was 5,000 to one. Um, they thought it was more likely that the queen would release a Christmas single and it would top the UK charts. The odds for that were 1,000 to 1. And I think the best one is that it's more likely that Elvis is still alive than it is that for Leicester to win the championship. The odds for Elvis still being alive are 2,000 to 1. And Leicester was 5,000 to 1. It's amazing. It's the ultimate David, the little guy, the young, scrappy underdog 
managing to come forward and beat Goliath, all these juggernauts, men, you, they've got like millions and millions and millions of pounds in their coffers. And so we all know about it. These are the David and Goliath stories that we talk about. And so today we're going to look at the David and Goliath story. Um, But the thing is, as I've studied through and as we look at this passage, I think we get it wrong when we call it an underdog story. See, I think when we look at this passage in Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, it's not so much a story of an underdog beating a giant, but a story of trust and how two leaders respond to adversity. So let's pray. Lord, as we get into your scripture and as we read your word today, we pray that you would bring it to life within us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see things we haven't seen before. Help us to see you, Jesus, in a new and a fresh way and allow this word to transform us into your likeness. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in 1 Samuel 17, and you feel free to follow along through the story there. I'm not going to be reading the whole thing because it's nearly 60 verses, and I'd spend my entire time just reading the story to you. So follow along, and we'll move through. Um, But Samuel 17 starts quite harshly. So in Samuel 16, if you remember, we've had the story where David was anointed uh, with oil by Samuel. And then the next story was where David was chosen to go um, work in Saul's courtyard as a harp player, uh, playing beautiful music so Saul's uh, bad feelings would go away. And so then Samuel 17 changes gears really rapidly. And you end up with this opening scene where it says the Philistines had come and encamped against them. Now, the Philistines were an old enemy of Israel. Throughout this book of Samuel, they've constantly been clashing. Sometimes they've you know, won and done well, and sometimes the Philistines have beaten the Israelites. And so there's this really antagonistic relationship. And so 17, uh, the story, opens up with the Philistine army coming up to attack the Israelites. And so Saul hears about it, and Saul gathers his whole army around himself, and they go out to meet them in battle. And so they come, and these two armies come together in this one uh, geographical location. And there's two hills with a valley in between. And so the Israelites encamp on one hill, and they fortify it, they get everything set up. And the Philistines come, and they encamp themselves on the other hill, and they fortify it, and they get it set up. And in between them is this valley. And so these two armies can look off across from one hill to the other and see the other army encamped with this valley in between. Now, the difficulty was is that they ended up coming to a deadlock in this encamped position. If any of you guys have seen Star Wars, uh, you know it's never a good idea to attack the person with the high ground uh, because the guy with the lightsaber will cut you apart. If you try to attack up a hill um, against a fortified place, you would incur huge, massive casualties. Um, And it's really difficult to fight uphill. And so these two armies are at a deadlock. Neither one of them wants to break camp because they've got the fortified position but neither one of them wants to attack the other in their fortified position, and so they just sit there staring at each other. So the Philistines come up with an ingenious way to break the deadlock. They find their biggest, baddest soldier, and they send him out. And this is where we first meet Goliath. Now, Goliath is super interesting um, because little, little fun fact for you, he's described so much in this passage. Um, the Bible normally doesn't spend a lot of time describing people's features, um, but Goliath gets more physical description than anyone else in the Old Testament. 
there's this huge chunk of time because the, the author is just showing what a big monolithic beast he was. So he's well over two meters tall. Um, the rest of the Israelites were probably more around like shorter than me. And so Goliath would have been head and shoulders easy above everyone else. And his armor is just enormous. He's got this massive bronze helmet, this huge coat of mail like scales that weighs well over 60 kilos. Um, he's got this spear that's like a pole with this giant head on it that no man really could wield very well on their own, plus a sword and a javelin. And he's just this beast. And so he comes barreling down from the encampment across the valley. And so what he does is genius. He calls out the Israelites saying, are you not Israelites and am I not a Philistine? Let us fight one another instead of just staring at each other. Send down your best warrior to come and fight me. Because my God, Dagon, is strong and mighty and he will prevail over your God because your God is weak and puny. Send your warrior to me. We'll fight and we'll decide whose God is strongest. Now, for us, we can look back at that passage, and we've seen heaps of movies where this happens, and we're like, oh, yeah, it's about to go down, you know, fights with slow motion scenes. And, but for them, this was super clever, because by framing it around gods, he, brought, he basically caught Israel into a trap, because he insulted Yahweh. And so effectively, what Goliath said is, look, come down and fight me, because if your God really is that strong then he could prevail over me easily. But if you're not going to come down and fight me, it must mean your God is too weak, too puny, and there's nothing he can do about it. And so Israel's caught in this catch-22 where if they fight him, they're afraid they're going to die because he's this beast. But if they don't fight him, then they're giving up everything that makes them unique. They're giving up their faith in Yahweh. It's this catch-22, and it's really clever to break this deadlock between these two armies. And so Goliath goes and he gives this challenge and he shouts it out. And this would have been the moment for someone to come forward and say, no, God has got this. We're going to win. And really the whole Israelite army at that stage would have looked around to one person to answer this call. They'd have looked to their king, Saul. See, Saul's description as king, one of the roles of kingship was, you will go out and fight our battles for us. You will go before us to fight on our behalf. The reason that Israel wanted a king in the first place is because they wanted this strong man who could go and defend them against all these enemies that they had. Saul was chosen specifically for that reason. And Saul even had experience doing it. A couple of chapters ago, there was this guy named Nahash, and he was attacking a village, and the, village, the Israelite village is like, hey, stop attacking us. And he said, okay, we'll stop attacking you. But as like penance or surrender, we're going to cut out the right eye of every single person in your village. And obviously the village is like, ow, don't do that. So they call on Saul and they're like, Saul, someone help us. So Saul heard about what Nahash was doing. And Saul, newly anointed as king, stepped into his role as king, rallied an army around him, and went to go fight against this defiance. The Bible describes Nahash as a defiance against Israel. This same word defiance that Nahash was is the same word that's used against Goliath, a defiance against Israel. And when Saul went to go fight Nahash, he was victorious. He led his people in battle and this village didn't lose their eye. They could all see. And so now this was his experience to do it again. <clears throat> and so he had the role, he had experience, and he was even built for it. 
Earlier in Samuel, one of the key descriptions of Saul was that he stood head and shoulders above anyone else in the nation. So Saul was not like this midget who's like, oh, Goliath's too big. Now, Saul may not have been as big as Goliath, but he certainly wasn't a puny person who never had a chance. If there was anyone in Israel who had a fighting chance against Goliath, it was Saul. So when Goliath issues this challenge, you can imagine the whole army turning their heads, looking at their king to see what he's going to do. What does he do? Saul steps back and just kind of blends into his army and they all retreat. And every morning and every night, Goliath comes out and shouts at them, are you cowards? Is your God that frail? Send someone to fight me. All of Israel looks at Saul and Saul steps back and all of Israel stands down. Now, for Saul, this was a difficult situation. Every day that he allowed this to go on, he was losing mana within his troops because he was the person who was supposed to do this. So they're, they're eroding all of their courage, their faith, their morale. It's all depleting every single day. So Saul realized something has to get done, but he doesn't want to be the one to do it. So he does what the only thing a man of wealth and means can do. He offers to pay someone off to go do it for him. And it's, it's in there, this, this, um, this reward that he offers. He says, look, you're going to get a big sum of money. Anyone who fights Goliath and wins will get this huge sum of money. I'll give you one of my own daughters in marriage, which means you get to enter into the royal line. Your children will be princes in this nation. And your nation will forever be free from tax and political burdens that would normally be put on anyone else. It was the equivalent of hitting the 40 million lotto. Like it could not get better than defeating Goliath. So Saul raised the stakes as high as he could, paying off anyone he could who might go do the job for him. But the problem was, the higher these stakes went, the rest of the soldiers in Israel would look and see, look, if Saul can't fight this guy, then what chance do I have? And if the rewards are that great, they must be too good to be true. So for 40 days, they hear this Goliath taunt, they hear this jeer, and for 40 days, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Saul, despite all of his anointing and his being chosen by God, Despite all the stories that Israel has in the past of a God who delivered them out of Egypt, who led them through the desert and provided all their needs, who gave them the land that they lived in and dwelt in, the God of Gideon, the God of Samson, the God of Deborah, the God who delivered them hundreds and hundreds of times, Saul knew all that, but really in this moment when that all counted, he didn't really believe it. See, trust is believing God is who he says he is. And as much as Saul talked a big game, and as much as Saul had everything there, when the chips were down, he thought, look, God's great and all, and he's helped us in the past, but this is the real world. And he's not gonna make any difference to that giant standing right before me. And so, Goliath, or so Saul hid. And for 40 days, nothing happened. Then we come to our next character uh, in the story, David, who we all know and love, who we've been introduced to. 
And this, this passage in Samuel 17 kind of reintroduces him, but it does so in a really intentional way that it contrasts everything about David with everything about Saul. So Saul was big and strong. We know David was the youngest and the smallest of his family. Saul had experience. He was the king and he was meant to be there. That was his role. David wasn't even meant to be at the battle. He was a messenger boy. He was a water boy. His dad had said, look, David, here's some food. Go take it to your brothers to beef up their terrible army rations. And then here's some nicer food to give their commanders. And hopefully that'll mean their commanders will be nice to them and not shove them on the front lines of the battlefield. And so David's this water boy going to and from, and he ends up there, but he's not even meant to be there. Saul's the king. David's a messenger. And then David, as much as we all love him and as much as we love David, David's not the shining light of morality in the story either. The first words that David speaks aren't these uplifting, amazing things. The first words David speaks are after he overhears the reward of what's going to happen for the guy who fights to Goliath. So he hears, oh, big sum of money, get married into the family line, and you'll be free from taxes. And David's first words are, sorry, what? Excuse me? Oh, well, the guy who fights Goliath will... uh, you know, he'll get a lot of money, get married into the family line, and he'll be free of taxes. And David says, sorry, I didn't, I didn't think I heard that right. Sorry, one more time. And he asks three times. It actually even gets him into a fight with his older brother, who's like, who are you? Like, I know you're hard. I can see what you're getting out of this. What are you doing? David's not the shining light of morality. He's stoked by this reward, and that draws him into the account. It's kind of foreshadowing the future problems David has with money and women that we all know about happened later on in his life. David's not perfect. But what is so different about David and Saul is that despite David's own morality failings and not needing to be there and being the smallest, David is the first person in the story, and this is halfway through the chapter, he's the first person who mentions God. He's the first person who incorporates God into the conversation saying, look, I know we get all that stuff, but who is this Philistine who defies the armies of the living God. See, David is the first person to recognize that leaning into God might be the answer to this situation. So then David talks a big talk. I think all the soldiers are either a mixture of half impressed with him and then half really frustrated with him because David's like, hey, I got this. So they you know, they decide, David, all right, put your money where your mouth is, and they drag him to Saul, and they say, hey, Saul, here's the guy who's saying he's going to go fight Goliath, and now Saul and David meet, and you see these contrasts that are there a little bit in scripture begin to develop even more, the differences between Saul and David. Saul looks at David and says, you can't fight this giant. Who are you? It's almost so similar to the words we've heard last chapter Man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Saul sees this small boy and says, what are you going to do about this? And so David responds, look, I've had some experience with things before. I'm a shepherd, and I've had to face a lion, and I've had to face a bear. But what's interesting here is that David, again, reshifts the conversation. It's not just about his own qualifications. He says, and the Lord saved me from the paw of the lion And the Lord saved me from the paw of the bear. And the Lord will save me from this Philistine. It's almost like David hears what Saul says. And again, David reframes the conversation. 
It's not about what I've done or who I am, but it's about who God is that we will be victorious here. So Saul begrudgingly says, well, okay, I mean, I'll, I'll let you give it a go. I mean, Saul really has nothing to lose in this scenario. If David loses, of course, they're not going to go subject themselves. And if he wins, then score. It's a win-win for Saul. But then Saul looks out at Goliath and he remembers this beastly man geared up to the teeth with military weapons. And Saul says, but you can't fight him like you are, David. Here, take my gear. And it's really interesting. The same words that are used for Saul's weapons are used for Goliath. Goliath has a bronze helmet. Saul takes a bronze helmet and puts it on David's head. Goliath has this huge chainmail armor. Saul puts armor around David. Goliath has this big sword. Saul wraps a sword around David. Again, you see there are different approaches to the same problem, eh? See, Saul and Goliath both are operating under this understanding that might makes right. If you've got enough swords, if you have enough chariots, if you've got enough military power to force someone, then you're guaranteed to win. And if you don't have the military means, then you're stuffed. They're both operating out of the same view against this one difficulty. And David, again, takes everything off, removes all the armor, all the weapons, And again, David reframes it as if saying, look, I don't need these, Saul. I don't need this helmet. I don't need this armor. I don't need this sword. And I don't need it because this isn't what's going to win the fight for me. It's not by military might that I'm going to win, but it's by the hand of God. So David says to Saul, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Trust is believing that God is who he says he is. These two kings approached the situation very differently as much as Saul talked a big talk, God was just a story that they heard in the past. While David understood that in this scenario, facing this giant, the only thing that would make a difference is God. So the story moves forward. David leaves Saul's camp. And I love it. Again, you have a contrast in the scriptures between David and Goliath. So Goliath has a bronze helmet, a coat of armor, a spear, a sword, and a shield. David picks up stones, staff, sling, bag, and pouch. What a difference from the weapons of war that Goliath used and the weapons that David used, again, as if saying might doesn't equal right, and it's not by military victory that things will succeed. So Goliath begins to see David coming down, and as David gets closer, Goliath is offended, so offended. For 40 days, it's been building up, and for 40 days, they've been working things through, and Goliath must have thought, oh, surely after 40 days, they finally found the guy who will take me on, someone as big as me, someone as strong as me, someone with weapons like mine, And instead, this young shepherd boy comes down the track. And Goliath is insulted. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Who is this little boy? Have you seen me? I'm going to eat him for breakfast. And so Saul threatens him and says, boy, I don't know what you're thinking, but you came to the wrong fight. I'm going to take you. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to leave your body out here to rot, and the birds and the beasts 
are going to come feast on you as you decay. But then David, it's remarkable in the story, David gets so mouthy and so cheeky back to him. And again, David's impulsive and he's not the moral amazing person that we love, but his statement back to Goliath is so important because it reframes this whole story. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, the one whom you've defied. See how the author is again contrasting these two things? Sword, spear, javelin versus God, God, God. Again, reframing how this battle is going to be won. Goliath said that David would be left out in the field. David one-ups him and says, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of all the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And then here, it's like David turns around and now is addressing both the Philistines and his own people. And he says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Can you see how throughout this story, it's never been about an underdog. And as long as people thought it was about an underdog, they were seeing the problem wrong. It was never about military strength. It was never about the person, but it was always about God. And so this story, this battle that we all think we know so well, the fight between David and Goliath, um, we know it, he charges at him, he swings the stone, flings it, it hits Goliath, he falls forward, David pulls out Goliath's sword, uses his own weapon against him, cuts off his head, and the battle is done. It's really, in the grand scale of things, quite anticlimactic. This chapter is like 60 verses long. The battle between David and Goliath, towards which the whole thing is building, is two verses. It's as almost to say there was never a battle in the first place. Because when the battle was against God, it's never even a real issue. And so it says, so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. Trust is believing God is who he says he is. This whole story has been trying to reframe this. It's not been about military might. It's not been about being the big strong man that other people follow. It's not about having the right strategy to get through to the right guy at just the right time. This whole story has been again to say over and over and over again, if you trust in the Lord, then the battle is won. And so it's not an underdog story, it's a story of leadership. One person, one king, who when faced with difficulty, leans away and retreats from God. And one king who when faced with difficulty, leans into him, as if God is the only one that will make a difference. So what about us? If David and Goliath is no longer this underdog story 
of the little guy beating the big guy, what does this mean for you and me? Well, the truth is in that in life, we all will face difficult situations. We all will face mountains or Goliaths or things that really rob us of all hope, that rob us of any chance of seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, the end of everything we know and hope for, we will all face those things. But the question is, when faced with these difficulties, it's not, can you find the right thing to break through? It's, will you lean into God? Or will you pull back from him? See, the Israelites had David, who was pretty good, but kind of, yeah, so-so at times. I mean, he killed a man, stole a wife. His later years, as we'll find out as a king, were pretty rocky, to say the least. Not the greatest parent. Um, If you're looking for parenting advice, I wouldn't look to David as your number one role model. And so, but David was this person that had enough faith to think maybe God might do something. And the Israelites maybe had enough faith in David to say, okay, maybe God might. But see, for you and me, we don't have to have this question of maybe God might, because we have someone who's so much greater than David. We've got Jesus who has already come and done everything for us. In John, it says, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, I have said these things so that you might have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So the question for each of us that this passage asks us is when things get difficult, to whom do you turn? When you lose your job, when you can't find a place to rent, when your relationships have broken down, when you're in pain, when you're hurting, when life seems hopeless, where do you turn? Is God just a story? Is God just a song that you sing on Sunday thinking, yeah, God's done some great things in the past and I know he's healed some people once, but that's not going to make a difference right now in the real world with you and me. He's not going to make a difference in this situation that I'm facing now. That's a completely different thing. Or will you lean into God and saying, I am facing the most difficult thing that I have ever faced. And God is the only one who will make a difference. Trust is believing that God is who he says he is. In Jesus, he has overcome the world. Overcome everything. And in him, we are victorious. And now it doesn't mean that God is a magic pill that we can take and it'll fix all of our problems. We can see throughout David's life that it's much more complicated than that. And in all of our lives, it's much more complicated than that. But the moral of the story and what we take away is the heart attitude between David and Saul. When faced with difficulty, do you lean into him or do you lean away? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are living and active. Jesus, you have overcome the world and you are sitting victorious at the right hand of the Father. And by your spirit, you are working in all of creation, drawing all things to you. But sometimes it's really difficult to see that. And it's really difficult to live like it. Holy Spirit, would you help us to know who you are? Would you help us to believe that you are who you say you are? Give us faith and strength and help us to lean into you. Amen.